Hello, I'm Sadia Khan and welcome to Immigrantly, a weekly podcast that is creating powerful stories around a diverse immigrant experience. Why is it essential, you may ask? Well, among other things, we know that during the next presidential cycle, 45 million immigrants will face relentless targeting, vilification and dehumanization while a large part of the country remains silent. Trump's promise to overturn birthright citizenship is just the start of this dangerous trend. But this time, we are prepared to fight back, reclaim our stories and debunk horrendous stereotypes. So, please help us spread the word by sharing our stories and work with family and friends. Maybe give us a five-star review and engage with us so that we know we are making a positive impact in your lives. Click on the links to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and just give us a thumbs up. Or if you're feeling exceptionally generous, subscribe to our Patreon. You can find links on our Instagram. And today's story is yet another example of how we uplift and celebrate unique immigrant identities. I have the wonderfully funny Lucy Paul on the show. She's a voice actor for the hero Mercy in the massively popular video game Overwatch. She's a comedian that did a show titled Hi Hitler a few years ago at an off-Broadway theater and is related to famous playwright Bertolt Brecht. She interviewed me on her podcast, Immigrant Jam, a few weeks back, and I'm so happy to bring her to my own podcast this time around. In that episode, by the way, we talked a lot about letting people tell their stories, what it means to ask, where are you from, and what is home. In this episode, I want to get deeper into who Lucy is behind the work that she does. So let's get started. Lucy, welcome to Immigrantly. Thank you so much. I am so excited to have you here. Me too. So when I was on your podcast, we talked about home and where are you from question. Yeah. I will start by asking you to tell me your story because I think there's always something unique and exciting about human stories. So we'll start there. Without asking you, where are you from? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, yeah, I was born in Hamburg, Germany, which is in the north of Germany, a port city. And I was born there to a Romanian Jewish mother and a German father. And then when I was eight, we moved to New York City. My parents wanted to come and spend like half a year, maybe a year here. My dad's a a playwright and an actor, writer. My mom is a singer and at that point was also directing uh, theater. And they thought that they would just come for a year and spend some of the money that they had made. You know how it is with artists. They make money and then they're like, we got to get rid of this. (laughs) (laughs) 
And yeah, we moved to Soho, to Green Street in the 90s. And then a year turned into, you know, 30 years now. And my parents fell in love with New York. My mother is Romanian, but when she was 14, they moved from Romania to East Germany. They moved there a week before the wall was built. Mm. So they were kind of trapped. So she spent her, like, adolescent formative adult years in East Germany and wasn't allowed to travel. And everything American was obviously forbidden. And so America was always, I think, this big question mark to her. And so she didn't get to go to New York until, I think, 1990 or 91 and fell in love and said, I want to live here for a little bit. And then my dad is from Bavaria and his family was also displaced because of the war. And they were sort of uh, refugees from East Prussia in Bavaria. So outsiders, Bavaria is a very strong culture of its own. And so they were sort of considered outsiders there. And I think my parents both always felt like outsiders in Germany in general. The Mm -hmm. fact that my mom's Jewish, you know, contributes to that, of course, as well. And then they came to New York and they fell in love and found a home. (laughs) So tell me, Lucy, when you came at the age of eight, how did your immigrant identity inform how you saw New York City or America in general? Because you were so young. Was it part of your consciousness? Were you even able to comprehend what was happening at the time? Well, I didn't want to move at all. My sister, four years older than me, really wanted to move, was excited, and I was kicking and screaming. Like, I had my little friend group, and, you know, I felt kind of comfortable in Hamburg, and I really didn't want to move. And my dad always tells a story. He says that I said to him, how can I live in New York? I don't speak English. And he said, well, you're going to learn. And I said, no, that's crazy. I'm not going to learn. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. How can I learn English? And then we made a bet. And then he was like, okay, if I win, you have to like do this thing. And then I said, if I win, you have to get me a game for my Game Boy. I'm dating myself now. Well, I already said 90, so it's fine. And then he says that about half a year after we moved here, you know, I picked up English within like three, four months. I came to him and I said, Dad, I just wanted to say thank you for not lying to me Hmm. because I learned English. And so I'll never forget the first day of school. We were I was late because we got to school and I didn't have the right vaccines. Ah. And so they said, you have to go to a doctor now and get these vaccines. Otherwise, you can't start your first day of school. So we like ran. I remember running across Washington Square Park to this doctor and getting these vaccines. And I was wearing this bright red dress. I'll never forget any of this. It's like so burnt into my memory. And then I, I'll never forget standing in the classroom, fourth grade, everybody staring at me. And then the teacher, Mr. Kuttner, started writing on the blackboard and said, this is how we write our sevens here. Because in, in Europe, you write a, the seven with the line through the like stem of the seven. So was he addressing you specifically? Yes, yes, yes. yes. He was like, this is how we write our sevens here. That's intense. It was. I couldn't really understand (laughs) it, but I remember him just like drawing the seven saying like, not like this, like this without the line through the stem. And then I remember this boy with really blonde hair and a plaid shirt and braces. Nobody had braces in Germany. And I remember his like smile and he said hi. And I was like, oh my God, these Americans, you know. And then after that, I just remember that my mom would like, instead of a lunchbox, she always gave me these like cool, fashionable 1950s 
round sort of purse. And everybody would be like, what is that? And, you know, I would eat yogurt for lunch. That wasn't a thing in the 90s. Nobody, yogurt wasn't a big thing yet. You know, that came later with like Chobani and the Greek yogurt right. craze. And people would look at me weird. And, you know, obviously she would give me like whole wheat stuff. And I remember just my eyes falling out of my head when I saw this kid have the cheese whiz and then not having any friends and nobody talking to me on the playground and just sitting there and not speaking English. But I don't know if I was conscious of an immigrant, you know, identity at all. I think I went from like the little king. I, I want to say king because I always felt like a boy when I was a kid, but the little <laughs> queen of my little friend circle to, yeah, being just an, a total outsider and hating it. So I did some research on Reddit. I'm scared. And you mentioned you are grandniece of Bertolt Brecht. Yes. My grandfather was Helena Weigel's cousin, who was Brecht's wife. And that's why they actually moved to Germany uh, from Romania. So my, my mother's father, my grandfather, was a German Jew. And in 1933, he was an intellectual. He was a, a professor of neuropsychology. And um, in 1933, somebody told him, you're on a list. Mm. And his sister was living in Romania. She was married to a Romanian man. So he went to Romania, not knowing that Romania would also be fascist. And that's where he met my grandmother, who was a Romanian Jew and a psychology student. And after the war, the communists took over. And then the communist regime changed in the late 50s, early 60s in Romania. So anybody that was kind of affiliated with the previous communist regime was blacklisted, couldn't work. And that's basically what happened to my grandparents. And so they fell into poverty. And his cousin, Helena Weigel, who was Bertolt Brecht's wife, Bertolt Brecht was already dead at that point, came to Bucharest, the capital of Romania, where my, my, my mom's family lived, and saw that her cousin was living in, in poverty. And she was a big theater star in East Germany. And Brecht, obviously, considered kind of like the godfather of modern theater in a way, you know. And she said, what are you doing? Come back to Germany. You know, my grandfather obviously didn't want to come back to Germany. During the war, he was stripped of his citizenship. He was stateless for four years. You know, it was a painful sort of history. But he was already older at that point, and he wanted to work and continue working, as most scientists are, like, obsessed with their with their work. And she said, you know, I'll set you up with a, a job at the university. I'll set you up with, you know, whatever you need. She had money, and she was uh, a star in East Germany and, and connections and power. And so she brought them over to East Germany uh, one week before the wall was built, mm. and they stayed in the Brecht house, and then they were trapped a week later because <laughs> the wall went up yeah. overnight. So you come from a famous family. Can we say that? Yeah. So I was reading up on Brecht, and he believed, and I quote, a play should not cause the spectator to identify emotionally with the characters or actions before him or her but should instead provoke rational self-reflection and a critical view of the action on the stage. Do you let any of Brecht's teachings influence your work? 
I think so. I mean, I think that anybody that studies theater comes across Brecht at some point. But of course, that having been in my family, I think not so much super consciously. Like, I don't think I ever sat down and thought like, okay, Brecht is what inspires me. But I've always been drawn to, you know, what you're describing there is this term that he coined, which is the Verfremdungs, which is kind of the like alienation effect. Like you break the fourth wall. It's not realism, not naturalism, which is a lot of what the theater here on Broadway, for example, right. is a lot of realism. You know, if somebody's in a kitchen, they're going to be slicing a cucumber live on stage, you know. And Brecht sort of broke that, which was, you know, revolutionary and new for the time. And I think I've always been drawn to that. If that maybe is something that's a little bit in my blood, I don't know. But I've always been drawn to the more absurd. I've always been drawn to breaking the fourth wall. I think that's why I like stand up a lot, because it's such a direct connection with the audience. You really have nothing in between right. you and the audience, you know. And I think that's also why I've always loved theater, not because I want to sit there and think this is actually happening, but because I'm sitting there knowing that it's pretend and I'm still invested in it and still able to use it to think about my own life or to think about the world. So, yeah, I think it does influence me, but not so much on a deliberate level, I think. So when you have that strong connection with the audience and you're completely stripped off whatever wall or distance you may have between you and the audience, it probably warrants itself to more vulnerability, right? I mean, it's kind of yes and no. In a way, the fact that in stand-up, you sort of perfect a set, you know, that's kind of your wall, I guess, mm. your protector, that you know how you're going to deliver this or you, you know, you've worked this so much that it goes beyond the room in a way. Although, of course, you always still have to read the room. But yes, I think stand-up is incredibly vulnerable. I think that that's why most people say, oh my God, it's the hardest thing or it's the scariest thing. You don't really have anything to hide behind and the truth of what's happening comes out pretty quickly. So yes, there is a lot of vulnerability. Talk to me about hard parts of stand-up. Has there been an instance where the joke didn't land? <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. If there hadn't been, then I'd be worried. I think every single stand-up will tell you this, especially the more experience they have. The times that you bomb are the most important times. Why? Because you learn and also you learn what it means to you, why you're doing it, if you want to keep going with it. You learn about your joke or what you're trying to say. You're trying to say stuff, right? You're, you have a thought. You think it's funny. You kind of work it into something that you think, you know, will make people laugh and then you try it out. And, you know, sometimes the room is tight and sometimes the joke is just not there and sometimes it's both. And you learn a lot about yourself as a performer. And the more you bomb, the more confident you get because you have that sort of in your bones. You know, it's almost like, okay, how bad can this get? I'm not afraid because I think that fear is what sort of takes away from a performance or from being able to be vulnerable, right? So right. if you're too afraid, you're not going to be able to open up. You're not going to be able to really show yourself or be truly vulnerable because you're living in that fear. And the more you do something that you're afraid of or that seems scary, most of the time, the less afraid you become of it. Or at least I always like to say you learn to embrace the fear and, and do it despite the fear. So where does the pain come from then, if you've already conquered the fear? 
Well, I don't think it's about conquering fear. I think it's about doing it despite the fear. I think it's about like having the fear be a part of it that, you know, even if you say, okay, I've moved from one country to the next and now I know how scary it is. Now when I do it again, it's still going to be scary. But I know that the fear is just a byproduct. I know how to deal with it. it come, it, It's packed into my suitcase along with all the other stuff right. that's there. So you've you just know? accepted the fear. It's part of who you are when you of, are performing. Right? Yes, I kind of thrive off of it. So I'm someone that really loves unexpected stuff to happen on stage. I really thrive off of uncomfortable moments. I really like that. I have a hard time with things going the same way. You know, that's why I love live performance because it's a different animal every night. And it is a true connection with the people in the room and the room takes on its own sort of life during the course of a show. And that's why I also like hosting shows. A lot of comedians don't like the job of the host. I like it because you're kind of like the ship captain that can navigate through these like waters. And I think if you do it right, you can really kind of bring a room together and create like a magic that only exists in that room. And the next time it'll be different, you know. And that's not to say I'm like, I'm so afraid of everything all the time. And I think, though, with performance, I've just learned that whenever I feel too calm, I get worried. I'm like, oh, this is not good. I need to, I need to be sweating a little bit. Lucy, you're also a voice actor on a video game called Overwatch. And this is something that our script writer, who is also working on this script, found out. And he's a huge fan of the game. He plays it with his friends. <laughs> awesome. And you voice one of his favorite characters. Cool. Mercy. Yes. And that's one of the main healers. Yes. In the game. Yes. Tell yes. me about Mercy. So Mercy has become sort of an iconic character in the video game world for this character class of healers or support characters that exist in, in, in many games. But she's become sort of iconic. She's also become sort of iconic for the game because she has this, her catchphrase is, heroes never die. And it's become this like sort of iconic phrase for the game. She's an angel. She's a healer. She's a medical doctor. She's Swiss. Her real name is Dr. Angela Zikla. She embodies sort of compassion, empathy, strength, and femininity in a lot of, like, interesting mm. ways. I really love the character because, on one hand, the character design is sort of video gamey, stereotypically sexy, big boobs, blonde, you know, blue eyes, this, like, in quotes, societally perfect face, you know, symmetric, whatever. But then um, she's very sassy. She's very educated. She's got opinions. So she has all these sides to her. She's not just this like sexy bombshell. She's not just this like soft, compassionate female character. She's also a very strong character. And um, and she's a badass. I really love the character. And you just said heroes never die. Yeah. For a price, though. That's the whole line, right? No, no, no. That's just a line. For a price is just a line that goes with one of her skins. That's just that that was a line that came with a special event. Uh -huh. Yeah, the line is heroes never die. When we say heroes never die, are we talking about heroes not dying because their legacy lives forever? Or are we talking about the memory of their work that lives forever? Because I assume physically heroes die eventually. I mean, I think it's both. I think the line 
in the game was created because she was able to resurrect the entire team. And it's called Overwatch 2, by the way, now. First Overwatch has been retired. On the inspirational level, yes, I think it means that, you know, the memory of a hero never dies. The legacy of a hero never dies. Is the world worth fighting for? So, you know, Overwatch is this team of characters who come together to kind of save the world. Right. Um, that line has meant a lot to players and people that know the game. I've gotten so many... You know, messages and met so many people who uh, have told me that that was a line that sort of, you know, popped into their head when a grandparent was sort of on their deathbed or something. And I think it's it's inspired a lot of people, but I think that it can be interpreted in, in different ways. Yeah. What does that line mean to you? God, I mean, that line now, you know, holds within it seven years of voicing this character, of traveling all over the world and meeting just incredibly amazing people who have told me their stories and opened up to me and, and a whole world of friends. And I mean, it, it means so much to me. It, it, it really is a whole world that opened up to me through that line. Talk to me about the industry itself, gaming industry I believe there is sexism within the industry. Have you seen it, experienced it? So I'm not like deep in the gaming industry, but I obviously through this character have met so many gamers and I have heard so many stories. And yes, there's a lot of toxicity, especially for female gamers. It's really hard. The online world in general, I think we don't have to be gamers to know that mm. online is toxic and that especially for females. Like I put out a stand up clip, you know, not too long ago and you won't believe how many comments there are from males that are like, women aren't funny, this woman isn't funny. And it's like, that's fine, fair enough. You don't, not everybody has to find me funny. But the sexism, you know, the focus on the gender is extreme. And so, yeah, I think in gaming, it's, it's really toxic. I think that there's a lot of female gamers that are trying to change things. I think that the companies, Blizzard, Riot Games, all, I think a lot of uh, the companies are aware and are trying to make a big push to give platforms to female gamers. But yeah, I think that it's a big problem. Uh, I have not seen it firsthand because I'm not a gamer, but I've seen my own sexism in my own life. So I can imagine that uh, the gaming world is not safe from sexism. So I want to go back to our interview mm -hmm. on your podcast, Lucy. And I started this conversation by referring to it. You asked me on the show the question that a lot of people ask, where are you from? And then we did a deep dive into what that question meant and what the intention is sometimes. But there's another question <laughs> that Americans ask a lot, which is, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, that question holds a lot of value because being in a capitalistic society... Our self-worth, our sense of self is pretty much intertwined with our work, what we do, how we present ourselves, how successful we are. How do you see that question? And what do you say about the assumptions that that particular question holds? I was actually saying this to my friend just a couple of days ago. Even though I so much reject the idea of a meritocracy and hate the idea of that, I still am not safe from how it's been drilled into my brain. And I'm definitely a person who feels guilty if I am not achieving or am not 
working, especially being self-employed, you know, it's even more so this thing of like, oh, my God, I just did something fun or I just read today. Get the whip out. How dare you? (laughs) You know, be productive. And so I constantly have to remind myself of it. I think that the like brainwashing is pretty deep. And I said this when when we talked on my podcast. I think that for me, questions are okay. I want to assume that they come from the right place. I do think that for me in the past, I felt this need when people have asked me to like list my resume. But now I'm at a point where I kind of, you know, I was at this fancy dinner recently and there's, you know, this like kind of ridiculous guy sitting next to me who was older and I guess accomplished and telling me about all his accomplishments. And at one point he said, what do you do? And then I said, I'm a comedian. And it felt so good because I felt myself relax and feel like, you know, he's going to ask me, what have you been on? You know, or he's going to look at me in a certain way because I'm not famous and he doesn't know who I am. You know, historically, I would have been like, but I've done this and and I'm working on this and I'm working on that. And I just sort of relaxed and thought it's so nice that I don't give, I can curse, right? Absolutely. A fuck what this guy thinks of me. And, you know, another thing that people in New York do to put you in a box or to judge you is ask you in what neighborhood you live. And I used to live in the East Village. And so I would get people going, oh, okay, aha, you have done well in life. Oh, congratulations. (laughs) You know, now I live in Ridgewood, Queens. And so he said, where do you, what neighborhood do you live in? I said, Ridgewood, Queens. And I could feel his face kind of go a little bit like, oh, it's too bad I was seated next to this peasant, you know? Like, oh, my I'm, I'm joking, but like that kind of like expression. And I, I said, have you been? And he said, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure I've driven through it or something. I oh said, well, I think you'd remember. God. It's What's a really great neighborhood. Fuck? Yeah, right. And I was just like, you know, I think you'd remember. It's a great neighborhood. And it's actually a really cool neighborhood. And it's so beautiful. And, you know, whatever. So all of that, I I think now, uh, the older I get, the more I kind of relax into not attaching my self-worth to my accomplishments. I mean, you know, I think as artists and in this industry, we are hard on ourselves. You know, a lot of people say, well, if you can live off of what you love to do, that's a success, right? And I struggle with how to define success all the time. And like I said, I'm not safe from being in this mentality of this meritocracy at all. But I constantly remind myself not to attach my self-worth. And I think it's it's sad, but I think it's the construct that capitalism needs to function. It needs to be that way. Otherwise, it falls apart and everybody would go, wait a minute, we're human beings. We don't need this. We need something else. I'll never forget one of my good friends from high school was um, debating what business school to go to for her master's. And she said, well, I could go to Fordham or I could go to NYU Stern or whatever it is. Um, But, you know, if I go to Fordham, it'll be a lot cheaper. But then I'll be with people, you know, and then they like go into jobs. They make like, I don't know, like 80,000 a year. But I want to be, you know, I want to get into a place where I have a real job, you know. And I was like, did you just hear yourself? 
What are you talking about? And then, you know, this like slaving away just for the money. I think for me, that's the sadder aspect of it, this like chasing of money and this idealization of people who make money. Like if you say Jeff Bezos is a piece of shit, people go, okay, yeah, you can say he's a piece of shit. And I'm like, he's an idiot. No, you can't say he's an idiot. He's not an idiot. And I'm like, why can't I say that? Well, because look at what he's done. He's become the richest man in the world. And then I'm like, yeah, because you have to be a psychopath to want that. (laughs) He's a psychopath or sociopath. Why do we worship, idolize idolize people that chase money? And we're not allowed to say that guy's an idiot because he can't be an idiot. He's a genius because he's the richest man in the world. And for me, it's like, no, that has nothing to do with intellect, intelligence or genius. Look, this country, at least 30 percent people voted for Trump because of his perceived wealth that he had created, right? So that is a manifestation of capitalism, quintessentially capitalism or capitalistic, right? Right, absolutely. There's an interesting article years ago in The Times about how low-income people identify more with rich people and vote against tax hikes for rich people because they identify with one day being there. They're, They're trying to get there, so they feel closer to them. The then, unfortunate reality is not everybody can get there. No, and I, I, I and, and I, it's okay, right? Exactly, not to be able to get there. Well, that's the thing. I don't know. That's what I was going to say. I don't know if it's an unfortunate reality. The unfortunate reality is that we're told that if we're not there, we are not smart. Like, we're not clever. If you were really clever, you would have figured out how to be rich. Right. Because if you're rich, you must be clever. When so many things go into that, generational wealth, you know, like your skin color. Racial identities, your socioeconomic status, legacy. (laughs) Exactly. Everything. Exactly. Exactly. So, and that's also something that capitalism needs to survive is exactly that mentality. You know, this like, if you're smart, you'll be rich. And you bring up such an important point, Lucy. People vote against Medicare for all. Yeah. Vote against unionization. Yeah. Yeah. And they are okay with that. Yeah. Because as you said, they want to be there and they don't have to be. And there is no reason why everybody should aim to be at a certain place beyond economic wealth. There is so much more that life has to offer, right? I want to switch gears and I want to talk about a show that you did off Broadway. Mm -hmm. It was your first show that you wrote, Hi Hitler. And I have a story here. Mm. I was listening to or watching one of your interviews where you talk about how as a child, you thought it was Hi Hitler. Like a greeting. Right. Yep. Growing up in Pakistan... As a child, I thought it was high Hitler yes, too. Yes, that's awesome. And it's so funny because <laughs> I was always embarrassed to say that this is what I thought. But yeah, now talk to me about this show. What was the thinking behind it? Because to me, when I think of it, it is a stand-up routine structurally, right? But was it created to be outrageously funny or was it created to draw some kind of reaction from the audience? It actually wasn't a straight stand-up show. I would say it was more a storytelling comedy. And I played a lot of different characters in it. So, like, more closer to, like, sort of John Leguizamo's style, which isn't, like, straight stand-up, but more storytelling. 
I have to be really honest. This is the first show that I wrote, and I created it with this guy, Matt Hoverman, who used to do these solo show workshops. And I think, you know, I didn't really analyze what my goal was so much. I just kind of like threw up stuff on a on paper and then did like 15 minutes of it and got reactions and then did 30 minutes and then applied to a festival. And they were like, it has to be 50 minutes. And I was like, oh, my God, I need to write more stuff and then wrote more stuff and then was like, I'm going to Edinburgh. I know nothing about it, but I'm doing it. And and just sort of like went on this ride. And I don't think at that point I was so much in a place where I thought too much about what I wanted the show to evoke hmm. um, because it was very raw. And, and you know, I always struggled with the ending for that reason, for example, because I think I wasn't super clear on, you know, what I really wanted people to walk away with. I wanted to tell a story. I wanted to make people laugh for sure. And it was funny, but it was very personal. It was about my family. It was about my upbringing. It was about this like a fish out of water feeling of never fitting in. You know, I've written three other solo shows since then, and I never really thought too much about what I wanted to evoke besides I wanted to make people laugh and tell a story and and have, you know, a fun, entertaining night. With High Hitler, it was the first one. I thought nobody would connect to it. I thought nobody would care. You know, I I used to watch John Leguizamo's Freak and think, oh, my God, he has a community. He's, you know, Latino. There's so many people that can connect to his story, you know, especially Colombian. That's like such a big immigrant community. And in the beginning of Freak, he sort of comes out on stage and he goes, all my Latin people say this or bark and all my black people meow. And then all my white people, then he says like a super long Spanish sentence that the white people can't repeat, so it gets a big laugh, but at the same time, it establishes his community, right? Ah. And I sort of thought, oh, my God, what am I going to say? Like, all my German, Jewish, Romanian, New York, people who don't know what they are or what they identify as, bark? Like, what? who am I connecting to? And then in doing the show, you know, so many people would come up to me and say, oh, my God, I feel the same way. I don't feel at home anywhere. Or, I've, uh, this, or my upbringing is crazy or whatever. And so that kind of became more and more the central focus of the show, this like feeling of not having a home. And through the show, I also sort of understood my own history, the fact that on both my mom and my dad's side, this feeling of home or displacement is generational. So yeah, I never really thought when I was writing it what I wanted it to evoke. But that's kind of what ended up happening, that it became about displacement and being a fish out of water. And at least the way I see it, I feel like human emotions in some instances specifically are so universal as humans we are looking for that sense of belonging for sure and self-worth are people mm-hmm. and people who can understand us so it is so intrinsically human in a way absolutely yeah i mean you know there's that book homo sapiens and stuff that kind of talks about this like tri- the tribal nature of humans and all of that and i think that is true like we try find try to find our tribes right and try to make community and i think that's why we're sort of especially in in this country in this like crisis because of the individualism and because of how social media has kind of like cordoned us off from each other and stuff but yeah I, I, the show definitely did that and and more than that it opened up 
this like world to me where I realized, oh my God, you know, back to your point of vulnerability, if you put yourself out there and if you dare to be vulnerable, you will find the people that understand that, see that, or even if they have a different background, it doesn't really matter. We are the same. We are one world, you know, we are really, like you said, our emotions are all the same all over the world. The only thing we need to do is not be scared of people who are different, not right. be scared of our differences. I think there's so much fear, especially in America, around differences that exist that we've become so isolated and so siloed because of that. Yeah. So, Lizzie, in the end, <laughs> I just have one question that I ask all my guests. I don't have a rapid fire, unfortunately. <laughs> If you were to define America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? America. I think I would define it as a beautiful, wild, horrible place. I like (laughs) that. That's my sentence. A beautiful, wild, horrible place. I really like that. Where can people (laughs) find your podcast? Where can they find your work? Yeah, my podcast, Immigrant Jam, that Sadia has been on recently. (laughs) Very exciting. You can find anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also find uh, the videos on YouTube at Lucy Pohl, L-U-C-I-E-P-O-H-L. You can find me on Instagram at youlovelucy, U-L-O-V-L-U-C-I-E. And then, yeah, you can take it from there. I have a live show in New York, which is also called Immigrant Jam, the first Friday of the month at Caveat. But if you go to Instagram, you can find all that there or listen to the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you so much, Lucy. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. So how did you like the conversation? Lucy is funny. She's passionate. She's honest. I had so much fun. And the question about belonging and self-worth through it. What are your thoughts on it? How do you view your sense of belonging? How do you see your people? Do you think that human emotions are universal and that we can see beyond how we physically look? Write to me. You can always reach me at sadia at immigrantlypod.com. This episode was produced by me, written by Rainer Harris and me. The editorial review was done by Shay Yu. Our editor for this episode is Hazik Ahmed Farid. And our theme music is done by Simon Hutchinson. Don't forget to follow us on socials, Instagram at immigrantlypod. Twitter at immigrantly underscore pod and we are even on TikTok and as my kids would say I am putting out some cringy videos there so you don't want to miss that our TikTok handle is at immigrantly podcast I will see you next time with another incredible story take care